It's great seeing you this morning. Uh, as many of you know, we've been in this, this series that I've just roughly entitled, you know, Our Favorites, where we've been looking at some favorite verses, and uh, a few of you have given me favorites, uh, just a handful, and all of them have been from Philippians, interestingly enough. I don't know how that happened, but uh, that's where we've been. Today, the verse we're looking at is kind of, kind of long, so let me give you a short one. This is John Sullivan's favorite. This is uh, John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. So if you don't memorize the other one, you got this one. So let's memorize this in groups of two. We'll split it down the middle. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. All right. Now let's say it together. Jesus wept. Fantastic. So if you don't remember the other one, at least you got this one. Now the, uh, the one that we're kind of focusing on today is uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. And it's a little bit longer. Let's go ahead and put it up on the screen. And we're going we're gonna to learn this one. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Okay, can we say that? We're going to do this in groups of, in three. Here's one, two, and then three. Are you ready? We're going to learn this. I consider everything a loss. That's, that's simple. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. Are you ready? One more time. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. Alright, we're going to start with the center section. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. Now, one more time. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. That was fantastic. Now, let's take that off the screen. We're going to say this all together. You ready? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Fantastic. Okay, now, that you say, that, that sounds good and spiritual, and that would be great on a coffee mug, but what does it mean? Well, as we've talked about in the past, if you're going to understand the verse, you have to look at the greater context. That's the most important move that we make. And when you look at it in its context, it's verses 2 through 9. It's kind of this big thought block, if you will. The concern of the Apostle Paul there is true righteousness. So that's what we're going to talk about, true righteousness. And some of you are going, Fantastic. I'm so glad that I came here for a 35-minute theological lecture on uh, true righteousness because I really need that for my life. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Uh, trust me, this is actually a lot more relevant than you think, and let me, let me kind of set this up. A lot of people come to Christ, I think, probably, because they think, I want to spend eternity with God in heaven when I die. That's not really a preoccupation of the disciples in the New Testament, by the way. It's sort of a 20th, 21st century preoccupation. I want to know when I die that I'm going to go to heaven, and so I need Jesus in my life. And that's not a bad motivation, uh, because the last I checked, the death rate's still hovering right around 100%, so you probably ought to be prepared for your death. But there are a lot of people that think, that's just not scratching where I'm itching, because especially when you're younger, I'm not thinking about dying and all that stuff. Uh, then there's some other people that say, I want to come to faith in Jesus Christ because I need to know the love of God in my life. And that's legit. That there are a lot of people, they say, I'm just, that's not scratching where I'm itching because, frankly, I got a lot of love. 
my mama loves me, my daddy loves me, and my kids love me, and my dog loves me, and I got a lot of love, and I just don't really feel that compelled to get more love in my life, and so whatever. And I'm not saying that the unconditional love of God doesn't change you or isn't unsurpassable, but it's just not scratching where everybody's itching. But when it comes to righteousness, everybody wants this. Everybody's hungry and desperate for true righteousness. You say, what? Yeah, I'm not kidding. Deep down inside, every person wants righteousness. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. It doesn't matter if you're religious or unreligious or irreligious or if you believe that there's a God or you're an agnostic or an atheist or it doesn't matter how old you are or young you are. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, male or female. Everybody deep, deep, deep down inside, they all really, really long for righteousness. We have a hunger for this, a need for this. And you say, what? I don't even, I'm not hungry for righteousness. I don't even know what that is. Well, I'm going to tell you something that you already know. It's just that you don't know that you already know this, but I'm going to help you to know what it is that you already know, even though you didn't already know this. You're hungry for righteousness. And let me set it up like this. Let's read together Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9, written by the Apostle Paul, who established a lot of churches and risked his life telling people about Jesus Christ. And here's what he writes to this church in the ancient city of Philippi. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Watch out, Paul says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, uh, Paul is a scholar, and as you know, scholars are generally pretty careful with their words. They're precise in the language that they use. They don't generally overstate things. They try to be precise. And so that's what makes what Paul says all the more shocking. Because did you notice what he called the Judaizers? And that word's not actually used in this text, but the Judaizers are the people who are saying, you've got to believe in Jesus Christ and you also need to obey Old Testament law, including circumcision and, and kosher laws and all the rest. And you know what Paul calls them? He calls them dogs. Now, Back then, you know, dogs is like calling them a pig or a swine. We like our dogs, but that's about as worst, the worst thing you can call them. They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're flesh mutilators. So Paul is holding nothing back here. Obviously, the idea that belief in Jesus Christ and doing a bunch of other things in order to gain acceptance, that was very offensive to the Apostle Paul. Yes? Okay, sorry. Squirrel. Uh, uh, in addition to that, did you notice what the Apostle Paul says concerning his own credentials, the, the things that he might count to his credit? Did, did you notice that? Look, let's look at this again, verse 7. Here's what he says. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss 
for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And uh, Paul gives us this list of his credentials, his credits, his accomplishments in verses 5 through 6, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But it's a pretty impressive list. And when he finishes giving us the list, here's what he says. He says, I count it all rubbish, and the word actually means excrement. It, it, it comes across actually in the King James, dung, uh, but it, it's excrement. It's the stuff that you don't really want to touch, that you want to bury in a hole and walk away from it and have nothing to do with ever again. And so why is Paul so intemperate? I mean, he doesn't hold anything back. This isn't, uh, he's not trying to be polite or anything. When it comes to our good deeds, our righteousness is somehow counting. Paul says, look at, look at, my, look at my three degrees from Harvard. Look at my Congressional Medal of Honor. Look at my, you know, my, my patents and all the rest. Everything that I would count to my credit, it's, it's all excrement. So if anybody else thinks that they need to revel in any of this or put their hands all over this or hold this up with, with esteem, I'm just telling you, you need to take that and flush that down the toilet and have nothing to do with it ever again. Paul is very... Um, unguarded in what he says and how he says it. So you have to ask the question, what would cause someone like Paul, a scholar, someone who's really precise and careful, a Bible person, to be so intemperate in the language that he uses, not just of his own righteousness, but of other people who would say, I'm going to put a little bit of weight down on this, or I'm going to really kind of depend on this to some degree or another with regards to my access to God. What, what causes him to be so angry, if you will, so passionate? Here it is, verse 8. He says, I, I saw the surpassing greatness of something. He talks about the surpassing greatness of something. It, it's kind of like, you know, at night you see the stars and they're really brilliant and they shine in your eyes. What causes the stars to disappear? Do they disappear into the black? Well, no. They disappear into the light. When a surpassing greatness of another light comes over the horizon, the things that used to shine so brightly and used to influence you and captivate you, they completely disappear. Paul's saying a surpassing greatness of something else has come over the horizon. There's a sun that's risen high in the noonday sky so that all the things that shine brightly, like power and influence and possessions and personal mag magnetism and all the other things that we kind of value, those things, Paul says, have, have no influence over my life whatsoever. There's no attraction, there's no power, there's no gravity to these things anymore because of the surpassing greatness of one thing. And the word that he uses in the Greek here is hyper-aircon, which is super thing. There's a super thing that's come into my life that has changed everything, that's liberated me from the gravity and the brilliance of everything else in my life. And what is the super thing? Here it is. Let's be real clear on this. The super thing is to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that righteousness that comes from God. So in short, the super thing, the thing that surpasses all other things that is beyond measure in comparison to all other things, even the best of things, the super thing is true righteousness. To which all of us again go, woohoo, super righteousness, perfect righteousness, I got it, fantastic, I'm excited, let's go home. Uh, before we can really absorb the excitement that Paul has over the super thing that is true righteousness, we've got to understand righteousness. So here's how we're going to unfold this. We're going to unpack it in three levels. First, we're going to talk about how righteousness is our most fundamental need. Secondly, we're going to talk about how righteousness, our own righteousness, is our most fundamental problem 
And then we'll be able to understand how true righteousness, God's righteousness, freely given in Christ Jesus, is the greatest gift. And then we're going to partake of communion as we recognize the gift that we've received. Okay? So let's just talk about this, the, the idea of righteousness. Righteousness is your most fundamental, my most fundamental need. Uh, and and here, here's what I mean. When we think about righteousness, a lot of times people just think, oh, goodness. You know, being righteous is being good or living a good life, being a good person, doing good things. No. No, that's not it. Uh, let's go at it like this. Uh, in verses 5 through 6, Paul lists some things that he thinks are, are to his credit. Let's go ahead and read this verse together again, or these verses. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now let's just kind of run through this. When Paul says circumcised on the eighth day, he's emphasizing the fact, I was not converted to Judaism, I was born into this. I've always been a Jew. And he does emphasize his Jewishness of the people of Israel, but specifically of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, I'm not just a Jew or any Jew. I'm of one of the two tribes that was actually faithful to the house of David. He's emphasizing his racial purity, but also he's emphasizing his cultural purity because he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I wasn't one of these Hellenistic Greeks who was culturally Greek but actually Jewish and so just kind of on the surface a Jew but not really a Jew. You know how it goes. And he says, no, no, no. I was culturally Jewish. Hebrew was my mother tongue. So he's emphasizing his just natural-born status, that there's something about him, at least within the circles that he, he would move, that was just superior just on the basis of who he was, who he was born to be. Not just in terms of what he would accomplish, but just the fact that he was racially, culturally pure, better than everybody else. That would have been an argument of some people that they would have received this. But in addition to that, Paul says, look at what I've done. Not just who I am, who I was born to be, or the family that I was born into. Look at what I've done, and then he says, a Pharisee. With regards to the law, a Pharisee. He's emphasizing his educational attainments and his community standing and the respect that's been given to him. On top of this, he says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. In other words, I wasn't just standing around enjoying the accolades and what people would call me and how they respected me. I was active in supporting what I believe to be the uh, reputation of God. And I was putting myself on the line out there actually advancing the cause of God by, of course, killing Christians and persecuting Christians and making their lives miserable. And on top of this, he says, as for the law that I was practicing as a Pharisee, faultless. 630 laws, apparently, and I've kept them all. I, I'm just kind of blameless in my observations of the law as a Pharisee. You know what Paul has just given us here in these verses? He's given us his resume. That's what he's done. And from Paul's standpoint, it's a pretty good resume. It's a drop-dead gorgeous resume. Now, do you know what a resume is? How many of you all have ever filled out a resume? Okay, Everybody here in some respect or another. Resume is what you present so as to get in because currently you're not. If you're going to get into college, you've got to put together a resume. That's the purpose of a resume. It's to get you into some place where you currently are not. Uh, right now, my, my wife and I were helping Shelby with her, with her resume. We're sent, sending out several resumes trying to get into colleges. Because if you're going to get into college, you've got to present the case for yourself as to why they should accept you. And so you present your 
academic credentials and your GPA and you talk about the classes that you've taken and you talk about maybe your community involvements and leadership qualities and, of course, your parents' ability to pay the bills and secure certain loans so that the university gets paid and all the rest. You're making a case as to why they should let you in and the reason you're making that case is because you're on the outside and you need to get in. If you're going to get a job, you better have a resume. Want to get into the club? You better have a resume. Because if you don't have a resume, you're out. You're not in. This is what Paul is talking about here when he talks about righteousness. He's just given us his resume. And uh, the interesting thing about resumes is you never exactly know what you're supposed to put on them. And sometimes the funny things that get on the resumes that you think are compelling to you, they're not really that compelling to other people. Well, let's just look at Paul's resume. There are certain things about his resume that would have been compelling to other people, but they're not compelling to me or to you. One of the things he says is, look at me, I'm Jewish. Okay, I'm part Indian. Uh, what's your point? Uh, so I, I can speak Hebrew. Well, you know, I know, I know Greek and a, little bit of, and a little bit of German, and I know a little Italian. His name is Arturo. He lives next door. But, so, okay, that's great. You, right? Uh, okay, great, that's fantastic. And part of his resume is, I'm good at killing Christians. You know, like, wow, that's, that's just kind of weird. And I'm good at not eating pork and shrimp and all the rest. Like, okay. But, you know, the weirdest thing of his resume is the top line, circumcised on the eighth day. Now, I can't speak for every guy in here, but I've never even thought about putting that on my resume. You know, and so what counts for some people to get in is like, ah, you know, whatever, who cares? I was looking at some things on uh, different resumes, and I thought this was kind of interesting. True, these are true things people are putting on resumes, just trying to get in with people. Watered, groomed, and fed the family dog for years. Woo! Amazing! Uh, how about this? Failed the bar exam with relatively high grades. Impressive. You know, uh, I have extensive experience with foreign accents. That could come in very handy. Um, my, I love this one. My father is a computer programmer, so I have 15 years of computer experience. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, here's, here, here are like, you know, they, they list on the resume sometimes hobbies and such. Hobbies. Donating blood. <laughs> 12 liters so far. Okay, now, you know, I've heard of cheap dates, but this guy makes money while on his uh, hobby dates. Um, Reason for leaving previous job. This is a great excuse. Responsibility makes me nervous. <laughs> oh, it's great. Okay, this is my, this is my favorite. Interests. Gossiping. <laughs> Hired. We need more of that around here. You know, uh, now, here's my point. You never know what other people need in order to let you in, uh, but you've got to put some stuff down, and, and it's just kind of funny. Like, what some people count, and other people are like, that, I, don't want, I don't get it. I'm tall. I'm fast. I used to could play basketball well. You know, I, I speak Klingon or whatever. Like, I don't, you know, I, I spoke Hebrew. You know, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Like, what? I don't get it. But we use resumes all the time. Sometimes they're formal, like you have to write them out and send them in. But we use resumes with people all the time. All the time. You use this in friendships. When you go off to college for the first time or, or move to another community and you're meeting people and you go, how am I supposed to dress? You know, do I, am I too dressed up? Am I too dressed down? Am I looking sloppy? Or am I, 
or am I n- n- not put together well enough here? I mean, how, how's this going? And the reason we're concerned about what we're wearing, especially when we move to a new location or meet new people, is because we know we're being sized up by other people all the time. We're being judged. Your, your resume is your clothes. Or if you're on a date, your resume might include you know, your cologne or your, your perfume or lack thereof. And, and you're always trying to present the case for yourself with this romantic interest. You know, I, I'm smart. I'm funny. And look, look how charming I am. Look how, look how much I care. Look how much I don't care. Look how moral I am. Look at how immoral I am or whatever it is. And we're, we're always kind of presenting these cases for ourselves to the other person to help them to let us in. And it's not just that we do this with people all the time. And it's not just that we do this with God. We do it with ourselves. The Bible says this is how bad it is. If you don't measure up to yourself, you won't let you in. If your resume is not good enough, you'll close the door on you. It's not just that jobs will close the door on you or that potential clubs will, or potential romantic relationships will close the door on you. You'll close the door on you because you've got these certain standards that you think you need to meet or, or expectations and this is what success looks like to you and then you don't meet those, those kind of standards and all of a sudden you're loathing yourself. And you're down on yourself, and you're chewing yourself out, and you're cur- cursing yourself. You won't let you in. I see this all the time. Uh, sometimes for, for people, uh, this, this happens to be the case a lot for dads and, and, and moms, part of their resume for self-acceptance is their children. So the children succeed, and it's not just that they're happy for their children. In some respect or another, if, if my children are doing well, well, then my marketability goes up, and I'm happier, and I let myself in, and I feel good about me. But what if my children are kind of in a down year? Or they've kind of slumped or, or gone off the rails and all of a sudden it's like my marketability goes down and I start loathing myself. Why? Because my children are part of my resume, not just for other people, but with regards to me letting me in. Or your job. This kind of is a, is a thing a little bit more frequently, frequently with men, but it probably happens with a lot of people. It's not just that your job is the way that you make your money. If you're not doing well at your job or you're in business and your business is kind of struggling, it's not just that you're having a hard time making ends meet. It's more like, you're starting to lock yourself out. Or if you've been between jobs, it's not just that you're concerned about being able to stay in that house and all the rest. You feel bad about you. You won't let you in with regards to resumes. We're doing resumes all the time with everybody else, God, others, and even ourselves. And the whole system is exhausting. Because it's where we place our confidence. It's the next point. If we can put that up there. Your resume is where you place your confidence. That's why Paul writes, I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives us the resume. And back in verse 3, the word glory is used. Where are you, where are you glorying? What is brightest to you? Glory means weight. Where do you put your weight down? And if you're constantly having to rework and redo your resume and, and build up your resume you're never exactly fully confident because you know your resume could change from one day to the next to the next, and it's a little bit exhausting, and we do this all the time, and it's not a 21st century problem or a 20th century problem, and it it wasn't just in Christ's day. It goes all the way back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve. You remember? They fall. What happens? They put together resumes, but not resumes on paper, resumes of fig leaves. They take the fig leaves, sew them together, and then they're presentable, and I, well, okay, now, God, this is why you should let us in because we've covered for ourselves... And these garments that we made, no animals were hurt in the manufacture of these garments, and no child labor was used because we don't have any kids yet, ha, ha, ha. And, then, and they like, God, let us in. If you understand all of that, if you understand resumes and how it's 
You understand righteousness. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. It is your fundamental need. And it's my fundamental need to get in, to be in, to stay in, to make the case. And this is what leads us to understand the, the second major point, and that is our resumes, our own resumes, your own resume, my own resume, that's our most fundamental problem. Now, I'm going to go at it like this, and you've got to put your thinking caps on because I'm going to really stretch you here. So let's just jump in. Please stick with me. It's not our attitude toward our sin that so fouls up our emotions, our spirituality, our relationships with other people, and our relationship with God. It's our attitude toward our own righteousness that is the biggest problem. I would go so far as to say that the main reason that people don't become Christians and give their life to Jesus, it's not sin. It's their own righteousness. It's our own righteousness where we're trying to build up our own resumes so we can be our own saviors. Look, when, when Paul becomes a Christian, he doesn't say, hey, when I became a Christian and I came to Christ, all of a sudden my attitude toward sin changed. He doesn't say that. No, I, I actually, look at what he writes. He said, whatever was to my profit, what, all the good stuff, whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. See, before he knew that his sins were wrong and he'd repent of his sins, his attitude toward his sins hasn't changed. His attitude toward his righteousness has had to change. The things that were to his credit had to change. He had to turn his back on what was to his profit from before. You see, this is something that a lot of people miss, and I'm going to help you not to miss it, because if you don't get it, you're, you're missing a whole lot here. Christianity is not just an add-on that enhances your life. You know, like you enclose the back porch, and now my house is better. That's not Christianity. It's not an additional room. Christianity is not a power boost to help us over the hump toward our own particular interests and goals in life. Some people treat Christianity like that. That's not Christianity. And Christianity is not a little salve for your conscience because we all do bad things and we need forgiveness and I need to feel better about my life and so I just need to come to Christ and get some forgiveness. That's, that's not Christianity. It's not just a salve. It's not an add-on. It's not an enhancement. Christianity is a radical reorientation. The gospel is so radical, it changes the way that you look at everything about yourself and about other people. And that's not just with regards to the bad stuff, that's with regards to the good stuff. You change your view on everything. And so let me help you to get this so you don't miss it, because if you miss this, you miss Christianity. Because a lot of people think that Christianity is just, hey, here's the message, stop being irreligious and start being religious. That's kind of what a lot of people think. They think the message of Christianity is stop being irreligious and start coming to church. Stop playing and start praying. Stop being bad and start being good. Stop disobeying the Ten Commandments and start obeying them. And as a result, people have kind of dismissed Christianity because they said, I've, I've tried the religion thing. I used to go to church. I used to go to synagogue. I tried religion. It didn't work for me. And they repent of it because they just think that the message of Christianity is just stop being irreligious. And start being religious. Stop being bad and start being good. I heard this story of a Christian missionary. Uh, Dorothy Sayers tells the story. It's a, a story about this inadequate missionary who was talking to this chieftain of a certain tribe in Africa. And the chieftain said, okay, let me get this straight. If I become a Christian, as a Christian, I cannot, I cannot murder people, cut off their heads and shrink them. And the missionary says, no. If you're a Christian, you can't do that. And the the chieftain says, okay, if, if I'm a Christian, then I cannot steal my neighbor's wives, 
bring them into my harem and use them for my own pleasure. And the Christian says, no, the missionary says, no, if you're a Christian, you can't do that. And the chieftain says, well, if I'm a Christian, I cannot invade neighboring villages, plunder them, and burn them to the ground. And the missionary says, no, if you're a Christian, you can't do that. And the chieftain says, well, okay, I'm a Christian. And the missionary says, what do you mean? Well, he says, I'm already a Christian. I'm 70 years old, and I'm too old to do those things already. I can't chase after people. I can't rape women. I can't burn down villages. I'm already a Christian. And Paul would go, no, that's, no, that's not, Christianity's not that. No, it's something entirely different. There's something more. You see, the the message of Christianity is to stop being irreligious and start being religious because irreligion and, and religion are both ways whereby people still try to stay in control and be their own saviors by creating their own resumes. Okay, put it like this. A lot of people relate to God the way people relate to the mayor or to the, the governor, something like this. It's a contract. So I'm going to be a good citizen, and you'll say, I, I was a good citizen. I served, you know, well in my community. I've stayed out of trouble with the law. I pay my taxes. Now, mayor or Mr. Governor, please fix the roads. Why are the schools so bad? And you think that this other person owes you because you've done your good, good deeds. You've been a good citizen. It's a way of staying in control. Irreligion is also a way of staying in control. It's a real popular way because you say, I just don't know that there's a God. I'm agnostic or atheist. Or I just don't even care. So maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't. I don't know. Maybe the Bible isn't from God. I don't know. So I'm just going to live my own life and do my best. And that's a great way of staying in control of your life. But the religious way is a great way of staying in control of your life too. Because the religious way goes like this. Well, I'm going to be a better person than everybody else. I'm going to be better. And I'm going to go to church and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to brush my teeth and comb my hair and floss between meals and, and you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to do, and I'm going to obey the Ten Commandments or at least most of the time and, and now, God, you owe me. Now it's time for you to keep your end of the bargain and we look at it not like a covenant but a contract. And one of the best ways you can tell that you're not actually Christian but merely religious is when good things happen. You think that you deserve it. That everything you've gotten from God you deserve And when bad things are happening, you get really angry at God because he's not keeping up his end of the bargain. But what the Bible teaches is that to merely repent of your sin, that just makes you either a successful or an unsuccessful Pharisee. To repent of your sins and of your righteousness is what makes you a Christian. Put another way, it's not enough to just repent of your sins. You've also got to acknowledge, and, and I'm, I am a sinner whose righteousness is fundamentally flawed because try as I might, and I don't even know that I try that much, but try as I might, I just know that I can't get my resume to where it needs to be, and so I need a resume, I need a righteousness that I can't actually produce. See, in the final analysis, if you're, if you're merely religious, you're either going to be proud and a prig or you're going to be anxious and guilty in either way you're not of any benefit to anybody. And this is why a lot of people, when they get into their teens or 20s, they say, I kind of tried the religion thing, it didn't work, and I just turned my back on it. Because I was religious, and all that did was make me prideful and kind of distant from other people, or I just felt anxious and confused and, and a little bit nervous and guilt-ridden, and it just didn't work for me, and so I turned my back on that. And I tell people this, on those occasions when I have the opportunity, I am so glad that you turned your back on religion. 
I wish more people would turn their back on religion just like I wish more people would turn their back on irreligion because religion and irreligion, they're both the same thing in terms of people trying to stay in control and be their own savior by creating their own righteousness. It's a great way, religion and irreligion, both fantastic ways to keep Jesus at an arm's length. But eventually what people have to discover is a couple of things. And if people come to a church like this, they're going to hear something like this. They're going to learn it. There's two forms of righteousness. There's Christ's righteousness and there's self-righteousness. But there's two forms of self-righteousness. There's religious self-righteousness and there's irreligious self-righteousness. And religious people are no closer to getting in with God than irreligious people. In fact, in some respects, they're further away from it because they think they're in when they're not. And irreligious people are not under that illusion. An irreligious person says, I don't even know that there's a God. I'm not in with God. I don't even care that I'm in with God. That's not even a concern. But a religious person could say, well, I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm a good person and I read my Bible every day and I brush my teeth and comb my hair and I'm a good person to everybody. If that's you, you're not in. You're not a Christian because you're still putting your weight down, your confidence in the wrong thing. You're putting it in you. Paul says, look, I came to a point in my life where I recognized that it's not just that my sin was the problem, my, my own righteousness. I got to a point in my life where I considered everything a loss, including my goodness, so that I might gain Christ. In fact, in order to gain Christ, I began to see that my own righteousness and all my credentials and accomplishments, they were like excrement. And I need to bury them, put them underground, forget about it, and move away from that stench. And until you've gotten to that point where you've repented not just of your sin, but of your own righteousness, where your confidence is in Christ and Christ alone, you're still not there. That's Paul. So righteousness is our greatest need, but righteousness, our own righteousness, is also actually our biggest problem. And that gets us to what Paul concludes, and that is true righteousness from God freely given through Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that we could receive. So he says, here's what it is to be a Christian. He says, the the thing I most want, the thing I rejoice in more than anything else, to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. A Christian is someone who recognizes that Christ has given to me the perfect resume. He lived the life I should have lived and he died the death I should have died so that I would have his righteousness. And it's by faith. Nothing else. And it's all his doing, none of mine. And I think it's really interesting that that Paul doesn't say, you know, I just want some of the righteousness of God. Like, you know, I'm 85% there and I need a little extra righteousness to get it to 100%. That's not how he does it. He doesn't even say, I want all of Christ's righteousness. Here's the way he puts it. He says, I want to be found in him. The most popular way in all the New Testament that, that Paul talks about Christians are people in Christ. You know what that means to be in Christ, to be found in him? Here's what it means. It means that when you're in him, And God sees you. He sees Christ because you're in Christ. When he looks at you, he sees the resume. This is to say, in Christ, God has given you the perfect headshot. Your resume is complete. It's perfect. And when perfection looks at you and declares you perfect, blameless, sinless, without spot or blemish, when the one who is beauty looks upon you and says, you're gorgeous, you recognize there's nothing I could possibly add or subtract from this resume. And if you try to change the resume or add to it in terms of your own righteousness, you're still not quite getting it, and you're making it something other than perfect. 
He has given you His righteousness. And this is what it costs. We think about the gift in terms of what it is that it has produced. And here's what it's produced. It's, it's gotten you in. The resume has gotten you all the way in with the one who has created it all. Perfectly all the way in where you can call him Abba Father. That's what their resume has done. That resume has, is basically what has given you confidence in eternal life. It's given you relationship with God where the very spirit of God has come into your life. And it has given you that confidence of the unconditional love of God because that whole resume was given to you not in accordance with anything that you've earned or deserved, but because of His pure grace. It all comes down to the righteousness that He's granted. And here's what it costs in order to give that. And for any of us ever to try to add to or subtract from what it is that He has done for us is to basically say, I don't quite get it yet. But when you get it, you rest. Do you understand the nature of the gift? It there's, there's nothing better. This means I'm absolutely confident before God, but I'm also absolutely humbled. And I'm confident because I know I'm in all the way in with God, but I also know that I did nothing to deserve this. And here's what it cost. So this morning, as we partake of the symbolic broken body of Jesus and his shed blood, I want you, at least in your mind, to be thinking, I consider everything a loss, even my own righteousness, even the things that would be to my credit. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, and I've lost them gladly. In fact, I consider them excrement that I would gain Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for loving us the way you did, for doing what it is that you've done for us and giving us the perfect resume. Lord, forgive us our pride that we would ever rest in anything other than Christ and Christ crucified. And now, Father, as we remember the price that was paid and the gift that was given, I pray, Lord, that you would increase both our confidence and our humility. Something irreligion and religion cannot even possibly begin to do. Either people are humbled and crushed because they can't live up to the standard or they're filled with pride because they look down on other people who haven't risen to their own level. But in, in the gospel, oh, you crucify our pride and grant us humility, but you also crucify our anxiousness and guilt and give us confidence. Thank you for giving us both of these things with you in the gift that was given. Lord, we're here to celebrate and remember and be empowered in the remembrance. May that be so in the time that remains. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.